HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour, presented by Le Creuset. I'm Dana Cowan, and today we're broadcasting live from HRN Podcast Lounge at Feast Portland. We want to thank our sponsors, Le Creuset, Travel Portland, Salt and Straw, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. Today, I have an extraordinary guest uh, who has a very special name, because it's mine. <laughs> Same name. Same name. Dana Frank from Bar Norman, who all of you in Portland know is one of the most amazing natural wine bars anywhere in the country. We just happen to be in Portland. So welcome, Dana. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. This gorgeous weather. Yes. So um, for those of you listening who are not in these tents, it is pouring, pouring, pouring down rain and muddy underfoot. But we are in a tent. And... It's quintessentially Portland. So I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm we feeling it. it kind of. I, yeah. Exactly, right? <laughs> and last night I was at Bar Norman, so I got to experience um, like your beautiful hospitality and incredible wine. Can you t- tell me a little bit about the birthing of Bar Norman and why you chose to create that bar? Um, I have spent um, the majority of my career working in hospitality, working in restaurants, and um, but with an emphasis on wine. Um, running wine programs and working as a sommelier and but I've done everything been a general manager I got my start cooking so that's really how I got into the business um, and I think after you know kind of working my way up over years I was ready to do my own thing and um, I love natural wine it's been sort of a very big part of my life since I started working in wine and so I just wanted to find a way to bring a space to Portland that felt comfortable and fun and vibrant like a bar, but it was about wine and not about cocktails and not about beer. And that was something really new for Portland because we're such a beer and cocktail city. Um, And so the idea was just to, you know, bring that sort of idea, but have it be about wine. Okay, so many questions. So you said you've been um, 
in love with natural wine really for a good long time. Yeah. A lot of the country and the world has caught up with you. Yes. What was it like back then when you were, you know, a lonely yeah, natural wine warrior? And what do you think changed? I think, um, you know, I, I think that I sort of came into natural wine at the same time that it was happening, starting to happen in New York and, you know, starting to happen a little bit in Oakland. But really, for me, it was traveling and drinking wine in places like Paris and drinking wine in London and realizing that the world of wine is so big. And um, I just had an affinity for these wines, uh, mostly because of one importer, because of Louis Dresner. Those were the first natural wines that I drank um, where the, the light bulb went off for me. And I was like, okay, there's something happening here that I've not experienced in wine before. Um, they're, the wines to me were more authentic and sort of interesting, and there was more of a story to uncover. Do you um, feel like um, they seemed more authentic because they had a greater sense of terroir, which would be sort of funny, right? Because the whole, um, you know, when people are getting geeky about wine, they're like, oh my God, I can taste the rubble. Yeah. But in some way, <laughs> you're like, it's it's beyond the rubble. Yeah, it, it is for sure. I mean, I think terroir has a place, and it's an important part of the discussion, but I think... Um, uh, you know, what I've learned is it's, it's farming and it's the people behind the wines. And for, for whatever reason, with natural wines, whether they're good or they're flawed, um, there's, there's a story behind all of them, which is not to say with conventional wine there isn't also a story. But maybe the stories were just more compelling to me. And I definitely felt when I got started, I was sort of like out on a limb, mm -hmm. just sort of figuring it out. Um, but because I had sort of seen that there were all these other places in the world that were embracing these wines and that the Loire Valley had been making these wines and the Republic of Georgia had been making these wines for so long that um, it was only new here. You know, it's something that's been going on for a long time. So I always like being sort of on the edge of things. <laughs> it's harder, but I like it. <laughs> so Louis Dresner, was there uh, one wine in that portfolio that you remember that was sort of your conversion wine? Yeah. Uh, it was a, I don't remember the vintage. I'm actually really terrible about remembering vintages. Um, as a wine person, that's embarrassing to admit, but very true. <laughs> um, but it was um, Domaine de Clozel Sauvignon, Chenin Blanc. And um, my now husband and I were at a um, tasting of Louis Dresner wines, and there were all of these Loire Valley uh, growers there. And Clozel was there, and we were talking, and um, they wanted to know if we had worked with Sauvignon or we knew about Sauvignon. And we said, oh maybe we know about Sauvignon. We really like Chenin Blanc, but I don't, I know we don't work with any Sauvignon. And she said, Oh, you must be so sad. <laughs> <laughs> and the light bulb went on. I was like, yeah, why am I, I'm missing something here. Like I don't know about this wine and I want to know more. And, um, so yeah, that was, that was one of the first wines for me. The and Loire Valley in general was sort of the like mind blowing moment learning about the Loire. Right. At, at Food and Wine, when we ask people, you know, what's your favorite region? And you expect a diversity of answers. Yeah. You know, someone's going to love Bordeaux and somebody's going to love, you know, whatever. But we kept getting Loire, 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 Loire. Loire. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. I think the diversity of wines in the Loire um, is, is what makes the region so dynamic. One, it's a very big region. Um, but you have white wines, red wines, rosés, you have skin contact wines, you have sparkling wines, table wines, sweet wines. And there aren't very many um, other places in the world where one region encapsulates so many different styles of wine. And so I think that's part of it. I think, you know, sitting along a river, this long east to west meandering river is really incredible. And then the history of the Loire, like it's vineyards and then castles 
and tiny villages, and it's just a really um, magical place for a lot of different reasons. And I think that's why it captures so many people's attention. Right, there's a lot of ways to capture your imagination in the Loire. Yep. You know, you could love it for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, for and sure. And always, always have a glass of wine in your hand. Yes, 100%. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are fearful of not, I mean, fearful is too strong a word, but are dismissive of natural wine because they've had so many flawed wines. Yep. And, and the notion of having an orange wine is like, really? Because... That seems extremely pretentious. Yes, I agree. So um, in introducing people to natural wine, do you think that you need to adjust your palate, your expectations? Um, like, what should someone who's approaching a natural wine list, like, what should go through their mind? I think, um, I think the open mind is probably the key. And I often try and explain to people, like, when you start drinking wine for the first time, you've never tasted wine before, you might not really like it, right? It's a lot of different sensations. I think most people, when they drink coffee for the first time, want to know what, why the hell you would want to drink coffee, right? <laughs> it's like bitter and it's strong and it's acidic. And it's something that for most of us, our palates aren't used to. And I think wine is the same way. And so it's just saying like, okay, this is something new that I haven't tasted before. And it's different than, it's just different than conventional wine. So saying like, I'm just, I'm going to train my palate to get used to tasting something that is maybe higher acidity or more phenolic, more grapey tasting or more tannic or more sour, you know, whatever the, the adjectives are, getting used to it, I think is the most important. So I have had some really horrible natural wine experiences. Yes, I have too. And, you know, <laughs> like between being too funky or yes. too um, acidic or just actually tasting off. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I don't, I, you know, I don't buy into this new thing. And then, um, and then like Alice firing, yeah. you know, like picked out some wines for me and like, these are actually, these are actually really good. Yeah. Um, so it opened my mind like a crack. And yeah. then I was in, then I was in Paris and, um, being in Paris, all the wines were natural wines. Yeah. And they were, like, my mind just flipped. Yeah. Completely. And all of a sudden it was different. All yeah. of a sudden it was different. And I was like, yeah. I've missed something. And then conventional wines taste too heavy, too round. Yeah. Um, you know, not enough acid. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm craving this much, and again, maybe it was the time of year. Everything is so much lighter, so much yeah. racier, and so much more pleasing. Yeah. And um, I was excited to be able to have that experience. We had... Pet Sounds. Yes. Um, yeah, that's such a delicious Oregon <laughs> wine. I'm so glad you drank that. It was fantastic. Can you talk about that a little bit? So Pet Sounds is made by a woman named Jess Miller, who is a really, really um, incredible story. She is a farmer first, um, which, you know, sounds like most people that are making natural wine, you would think are farmers. But um, in a lot of regions of the world, it's too expensive to own land. Like if you don't have money or you're not born into a family that has land, um, it's not super easy just to go out and buy vineyard land. Um, and uh, so you have a lot of people that make wine, but they purchase their fruit. Um, so, you know, maybe they're working closely with a grower, so they have a real say over how the fruit is being grown, but they are purchasing it. They're not farming it themselves. Jess is a farmer. She had the extraordinary opportunity to work um, at Clos Roche Blanche, which is one of the most legendary and special um, natural uh, wineries, amazing vineyard in the Loire Valley. Um, so she did some farming there um, and a couple of other places and then came to Oregon and she farms here for some different people and also makes a little bit of her own wine. So that's a, um, the Pet Sounds is a pet nat made from Pinot Noir. 
And it's the most brilliant, gorgeous, pink, juicy, just delicious wine with like just a touch of sweetness. And it's perfectly balanced by the acidity. And it's just like a guzzler. You just want to drink it. And it's, a, it's called Pet Sounds. And there's jellyfish on a label. <laughs> and it's like all the things that you want. And it's, I think it exemplifies really delicious, well-made natural wine. And that it's clean. It's free of flaws. But it's so, um, like, so well-farmed. Um, and it, it checks off all the marks for natural wine. You know? It was, it was perfect. And as you say, like, in this really comfortable, um, relaxing setting with some brass candlesticks yeah, and, yeah. you know, a, a glass of pink, um, pink wine in front That's of you. And like I think, you know, it's for me, my biggest goal um, now where I'm at in my career is about um, making wine accessible um, and making wine approachable. And I think that that is sort of the next kind of frontier for um, wine and for natural wine specifically. And when you think back to the history of natural wine, like it, it is a beverage that was on the table. It was not anything aristocratic until you got maybe to Burgundy and Bordeaux and Sauternes and Tokai, but it was not aristocratic, right? It was wine that was just, it was a beverage that was on the table. People came in from working in the vineyards or, you know, from in the town at their bakery or, you know, their meat shop, and they just had wine on the table. And we've gotten really far away from that. Um, and so my goal is, like, how do we get back to that place where... Um, there's wine of, of all different price points in all different sorts of uh, environments and atmospheres where no matter how you feel about it, you can drink it and enjoy it. So, so you were talking about like bringing it to the table, right? Yeah. And uh, wine and food <laughs> work really well together. Yes, they do. <laughs> and you uh, published a book, I think it was last year. Yes, just a year ago. Just exactly a, year a year ago. ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was Wine and Food Together. Yes. And one of the, your goals with that book was to show a lot of different ranges and styles of wine. And I actually um, am of the belief that, let's see, 25% of pairings, maybe 10% of pairings just are horrible, and Agreed. 10% of pairings are really brilliant and worth worrying about, uh -huh. and the rest of it, like, we should all just be drinking and eating. Exactly. Um, yep. But in, in the book, you expose people to different types of wine and then different pairings to just sort of make it easier, yep. as you say, to make it more accessible. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the same time, knowing that, like, you're not really going to go so hard wrong. Right. Exactly. I'm wondering from that book and from that experience, I mean, you're thinking about wine and food together all the time, maybe yeah. not at Bar Norman at this exact second, right. but you have in your whole in career. General, yeah. uh, so I'm wondering, like, how should people think about putting those two things together? Um, you, know, I, you know, there's two rules of thumb, and they s sound funny when you say them together, but I think things that are opposite go really well together, and things that are similar go really well together. But it depends on what those similar things are. So... Um, you know, when you think about spice and heat, um, things that uh, kind of counterbalance that, so the opposite of that, are really great friends. So things that have fruitiness and a little residual sugar um, and a little sort of roundness are really great. So that's like an opposite sort of attract type of thing. And then in the, um, you know, when you think about like a grilled tomahawk steak, you know, something that is like charred and smoky and a little bit fatty. Um, you want a wine that can kind of stand up to that. So you want, you know, a wine that's got some like body to it and some guts. So those are the similar things. The opposite part is you want a wine that also has acidity. So your palate stays really like fresh feeling and not tired. So it's like a red wine with body and guts to it, but also with acidity. 
So it's the opposite things and then the similar things and finding the balance in between. Right. I, I love it when like, wine's the thing that just clears all that fat away. You're yeah. Like, I, I need some more wine. Why would you drink water? You need <laughs> exactly. wine. You need acid. <laughs> exactly. And um, you talk about a lot of different types of wine. Like if people are, you know, they know something, but they want to go to the next level. Yeah. Like, what do you think people should be drinking to just expand their minds a little more? Because I feel like that's part of yeah. the education, right? Yeah. Part of the education is just drink. Yeah, um, for sure. That's have, the best way to learn. And then go to a wine shop where you trust somebody and just say, yep. like, this is what I'd like before. Find yeah. me something like it. And this is my price range. Be really right. bold. Yep. Um, but I feel like there's a, the next level is yeah. actually really important. I feel like so much is discussed at the base level and yes. then so much is like at the super high end like and then what's in the middle well what's in the middle yeah I think um, I think finding confidence in your palate so as you said knowing what you like what tastes good to you and then saying okay so I figure that out what's the next tier above that so I know that I like um, Oregon Pinot Noir I like wines that have a nice balance of fruit and earthiness they have some acidity to them they're not big, bold wines. So what's a new place that I can go from there? What's something that's sort of in that family and it takes you up to the next tier? In which case, I would recommend that you tried Nebbiolo. So then Nebbiolo gets you into a different country, a different type of wine, a different grape, but it's similar enough that if you like Pinot Noir, you're probably going to like Nebbiolo. And then once you sort of like play around with Nebbiolo, where do you go from there? Well, you could try other red grapes that are grown in the Piedmont where Nebbiolo is grown and that get, takes you one direction or you could try another red grape um, that is again kind of similar and you could try a Norello Mascalese that comes from Sicily so it's sort of like a spider webbing out from where you are I really love, love, love that as an idea and I've never heard that described before um, so you're taking the central flavor components yep. and building on what appeals to your palate exactly. but moving you around the world because like you could just keep going in Pinot Noir Absolutely. and you could get deeper so that's I guess one way but exactly. it's, it's super exciting to like switch the flavor profile a little bit yeah I mean if you take this example of Nebbiolo and you say okay I tried Nebbiolo and I like that so now I want to try something else from a region that yeah. is similar but maybe not Nebbiolo and all of a sudden you get into um, Dolcetto or Barbera or you get even more interesting and you um you know, drink another indigenous red from the Piedmont, all of a sudden you're in a completely different style of wine and you've moved pretty far away from Pinot Noir by that point, but you've given yourself sort of the, the baby steps to get there rather than saying, I really like Pinot Noir, but people say I should try orange wine. I really love that. What about a white? Like, give me a trajectory on a white. So, um, you are a fan of Sauvignon Blanc. I love and Sauvignon let's say, Blanc. Okay, actually. so let's say... <laughs> Let's say we'll be new world about it. You're a fan of like New Zealand or California style Sauvignon Blanc. So something that's a little bit more herbaceous, more grassy. Um, so I would say a good place to go from there is like, oh, you might like Vermentino. Mm -hmm. And where does Vermentino grow? Well, traditionally it grows in Italy, coastal Italy. So let's take you to coastal Italy and you try some Vermentino. Oh, and all of a sudden Vermentino, it's coastal Italy. And if you just go a little bit further up the coast, you're in Liguria, which is all along the coast. And then you can try the great Pigato, which grows right next to the Vermentino vines in Liguria. And all of a sudden now you're tasting a completely different grape from a different region that doesn't really taste like Sauvignon Blanc, but you've taken the step to get there by way of going through Vermentino. Okay, I, I, I really love that as a flavor, um, as a flavor map. 
at the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about uh, being on the edge, yeah. you know, always like finding yourself there sort of yeah. <laughs> one way or another. Yeah. And what do you feel like is the next edge? Or what For myself personally? Or exactly. What yeah, are you experimenting you know, with? I, um, to be perfectly honest, I am really loving and sort of reveling in my life as it is right now. Mm-hmm. I am in my 16th year of working in wine. Um, and Bar Norman uh, just celebrated a one-year anniversary. And um, I'm a mom and a wife, and um, we have a couple of different wine businesses. And I'm really, really enjoying having one business to run and no extracurricular projects right now and really settling into just my life as a, as a career person. And my focus right now is so much more on um, mentoring and working with people who are coming up underneath who are younger. I'm 41 now and I feel like I've been super fortunate to have had the mentors and the people that I've worked with and the amazing role models to look up to. And I'm not at all putting myself in that category, but I feel like it's just now it's time to start giving some of that back. And so um, I'm really lucky to have a staff of all young, vibrant, energetic people that have many more hours in the day of energy than I have. And so my goal is really to help them kind of find their way and what's the next steps for them um, and sort of just enjoy where I'm at. And it feels really good. And there might be a, one or two projects in the works that are under the wraps, but well, under wraps, but nothing big. I have to ask about um, wine and music. Yeah, and you're going to yeah. go way beyond my ability to understand anything. But, <laughs> but you were, you know, opening up the floor for a dance party. Yeah, and your husband was like up in the crow's nest, yep. spinning some records, and you've done a pop up that yep. was like food and music. Yep. So what are the what are the connections there and? Uh, well, I, I mean, the main connection is the connection with my husband, with Scott, um, because he's uh, the reason that my life is full of good music. And um, it, to me, is like there's no day without music in my life anymore. It's from the time we wake up until through all hours of the day, in the car, at home, at the bar. And, um, you know, part of setting up the bar was to us ha- to have a place that was sort of like kind of our thing that we're going to do for a long time. It wasn't anything that we looked at as like, we're going to do this for a little while and then move on to something else. It's like, this is it. So what are the things that we care about the most? And it's wine and music and how do we put those things together? And so um, we very much talk about the bar in terms of like, oh, it's good vibes because the wine's great and it's a lot of fun people that come hang out there. But also there's like a great hi-fi system and we play the music pretty loudly and that's part of the vibe. Like if you go to a bar, a cocktail bar, or you go to a beer bar, it's loud, it's vibrant, it's vivacious. And so we're trying to create sort of the same thing. And the music, I think, in some regards is more crucial to that than anything else, you know, than to the bar feeling great is the music. So on um, on Heritage Radio Network, I host a show called Speaking Broadly. Yes. And on Speaking Broadly, I have a couple of questions that I ask every guest, and I'm just going to indulge myself here okay. and ask, and ask right. you. Um, and it's okay if you don't have an immediate answer. We okay. can move on. Is there one thing, hopefully a product, that is better than the hype? That's better than the hype. Oh my gosh, that's really tough to think that's better than the hype. We okay. can pause. I'll let you think about okay, that. Okay, I'm going to think on that. I'm going to come up with something. And um, paying it forward, giving a shout out to a woman who you admire so much, who you want everyone to know about. 
Can I have two people? Yes, you may. Okay. So um, one person would be my sister, Lindsay Corbin, who um, is three years younger than me and is truly like my hero. Um, she's Why? A she's a professional athlete. And um, what it takes, what I've learned from her is what it takes to compete at an elite level, not physically, but mentally and emotionally. She's just the strongest person that I know. And I have a huge amount of admiration for uh, her dedication and her grit. And she just doesn't ever give up. Uh, the other person would be my dear, wonderful friend, Whitney Schubert, who um, lives in New York. She works for Polaner Selections. And she was one of the first women in wine who really inspired me and lit a fire under me to work harder and do better and keep learning. Um, She's a you know dear, dear friend of mine, but I think has, for a lot of women in the business, sort of set the path for success and for constantly learning and asking questions and being curious. And she's a tireless advocate for the growers that she represents. And yeah, absolutely is, I think, one of the people that got me where I am. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Product or we'll skip. Product that is... I'll give you an example. Hyped and yeah. Um, so, um, Marguerite Mariscal, who's um, the CEO of Dave Chang's Empire, yep. chose the Mr. Clean Eraser. Oh my gosh, I love that magic eraser. <laughs> it's so true. Okay, I have one though. I would say it's in the cleaning realm, but a Tide stick. Really? Because as a wine person, I would never, I have, my staff has learned there's like a Tide stick in the desk upstairs, there's a Tide stick downstairs, there's a Tide stick in my bag because. You're if you're you're gonna get red wine on yourself, or someone's gonna come to our bar and get red wine on them, and the Tide Stick literally makes the wine disappear. It's not just like stain remover and then you wash it. I did it to one of my employees the other night, and they couldn't believe the stain went away. So yeah, I would say that it's okay. like it's like the magic eraser for clothing. Fantastic. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Worth <laughs> the hype. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thank you so much, Dana Frank, for. Um, joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening to Heritage Radio Network on Tour, presented by Le Creuset. Thanks again to our supporters, Le Creuset, Travel Portland, the Salt and Straw, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. I'm Dana Cowan. Stay tuned for more from a really beautiful, but very rainy Feast Portland. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>